This morning, I uh, want to go back into the Old Testament again. I've been there a lot lately, but we're in the, the book of, of Micah, the prophet Micah in the Old Testament. Toward the end of the, the Old Testament, you'll find him there. Micah in chapter 5, and there's one simple verse, and some of you already in your minds know what verse that is. And it's a, it's a proclamation, a declaration. It's a word about Bethlehem, the city in which Jesus would ultimately be born. And we'll read that in just a moment. But I uh, just want to encourage you that uh, as we think about Bethlehem and as we think about the birth of Christ, as we're approaching uh, Christmas Day and we celebrate Christ's birth, I want to remind you that if I could call the title of the sermon, it would just simply be Bethlehem, a most significant little town. In fact, it might be the most significant little town ever, Bethlehem. You know, we sang that song, O Little Town of Bethlehem, and I love that line as I just prayed, and I, we were singing, O come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. And it's a reminder that God is still with us. He came, He dwelt among us, He left, but then He sent His Holy Spirit. Jesus sent His Holy Spirit, and then He's never going to leave us or forsake us. What a blessing that is. Oh, come to us, abide with us, O Lord Emmanuel. You know, as great a song as that is that we sang, Bethlehem, back in the day, wasn't much of a village to really talk about or a town to talk about in Jesus' days. It really wasn't. Back then, it was this obscure little village, right, that would not have impressed us. It wouldn't have. We wouldn't have been enamored by it, nothing spectacular about it. A little place with just a few amount of people. Some believe there may have not even been a thousand people, maybe much less than that. So they're not sure, a hundred percent. But it was a small set of houses that were scattered along the the site side of I'm sorry, a side of a ridge and protected by a wall that was in a bad state of repair. That's what it looked like. Little village. You know, God could have chosen, instead of singing, O little town of Bethlehem, we could have sang the song, O great city of Jerusalem. Could have done that. I mean, it could have been that way if God so chose, right? It could have, but it wasn't to be. That wasn't God's plan. Or, Or maybe even Hebron, which has so much significance, or any number of significant other impressive cities. But he didn't do that. He chose Bethlehem. Bethlehem. It was said in Micah chapter 5, if you're there, Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Micah says, and God says to him, but you, Bethlehem Ephrata, I know, I'm saying it like a Ukrainian would say it. (laughs) Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are small among the clans of Judah, Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. God had a plan. Amen? Notice that the prophecy says in our text, and the prophet Micah says here, he says that it's Bethlehem Ephrata. Why? Why is it Bethlehem Ephrata? Because you know why? There are two Bethlehems. In Israel. Did you know that? There are two Bethlehems. One is way up north, and it's just a few miles from Nazareth where Mary and Joseph lived, and the second is about 75 miles south, south of Nazareth. 75 miles. 
That's a long trek by foot or by donkey or a little caravan. That's a long ways to go, right? Nothing for the hyper-marathoners who run the 100-mile marathons, right? Nothing to them. But it's a long trek. And its proper name is Bethlehem Ephrata. And that is exactly or precisely what the prophecy declared here, that God declared, declared 700 years before Jesus was born. God was being very specific as to which Bethlehem was to fulfill the prophecy. And notice what he says about Bethlehem Ephrata. Though you are small, though you are small, See, small things are significant, especially when God is involved and it involves God's plans. Now, I can think of a number of small things, and so can you, I'm sure, that are very, very, very important, right? Jesus himself, when he talked about himself being the light of the world, but, and he talks about Christians, citizens of his kingdom being the light of the world, and you don't put it under a bushel, but you put it on a stand so everyone can see it. But the picture is simply this, that no matter how dark a room is, and we see it on display a little bit on Christmas Eve when we light candles, but it can be pitch black. All you got to do is take one tiny flame, and you know it just pushes away all the dark. Suddenly you can see something at least, It's all gone. One little flame in a whole room of blackness. It's small, but it's so significant, isn't it? How about about the rudder on a ship, right? You get a thousand foot long ship, and the rudder is, is a fraction of the length of that ship, and yet that rudder is absolutely critical and significant for the journey that that ship is taking, right? One rudder a little part on that thousand-foot vessel determines where it will go or not go if it breaks down. It's critical. It's a small part, but it's so important. Wayne is a mechanic. He knows cars like nobody's business, man. He's a great mechanic, by the way. I know you love when I puff you up, right, and make you, right? You're, you're, You're too humble. You will never, and he is, by the way, and I say that with all sincerity. And I remember going and watching him do some things, and like the little cotter pins, pretty important, aren't they? <laughs> They're these little tiny pins, and yet everything hinges on that pin being in place. Because if a bolt or some kind of a, a, a pin, a, bit, a larger pin that has a hole in it lets go, the whole thing falls apart in the suspension. One little pin, one inch long, a couple millimeters wide, is so significant. And if it wasn't there, you could end up in a ditch. It's that important. Right? And so when you drop them on the floor, Wayne is frantically looking for that cotter pin because you need it. Right? We had that experience. You need that cotter pin. Really, really, really important. But I think about other little things. I can go on and on for the rest of the day. I won't do that. But Jesus talked about the mustard seed. It is so little, but look what it produces. And he talks about our faith, even though it is little. Faith is faith, but even though it's little, small as a mustard seed, it results in eternal life, a belief that brings eternal life through our Savior Jesus Christ, right? It's so small. I think of small or insignificant people in our eyes. I could list dozens throughout Scripture. But what about Joseph? The little brother. 
you're nothing. We don't care about you. And look what God did through him. What about David? A little shepherd boy and that whole... St- I mean, there's so many things, lessons for us to learn there and how God used him. What about Gideon? This timid, timid man of God. We actually talked about him in Awana on Wednesday, right? But he's there and God calls him. And then God reduces his army of tens of thousands of soldiers down to 300 men. Small! That's a joke. It's insignificant. And they destroy all... They, they, they're, they're, they're victorious. Let me put it that way. They're victorious over the whole Midianite army. They're victorious with 300 men. It looked so small. What about the 12 disciples? A small group of Christ followers during Jesus' lifetime. And look at what they've done. Look at us now. We too are followers of Jesus. Small, simple Some were complex and complicated individuals that followed Jesus, but most of them were just unknown. And they followed Jesus. And we here have the Church of Christ all around the world now. Small things are significant. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 11, the angels declare, Luke records, that the angels declared to the shepherds in the fields when Christ was born, they said, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now that's really important. Everything's important, right? It's all important in the Word. You see, Bethlehem was the city of David. It was where David had been born. If you look at history and you understand David's um, story. And there is a bloodline and history that is connected to it that we can't just, I have to do it now because it, You could do all kinds of studies on it. But there's so much depth and meaning with the history and the bloodline connected to this. I'll just mention a couple just to whet your appetite. And for those of you who do know the Word of God and you've been Christians for a long time, you you know how powerful and meaningful this is. Rachel, the wife of Jacob, was buried there. And there's a symbolism there of Rachel, how the Jews are God's people and ownership and the bride of Christ. And there's so many connections... That's a whole, there's a sermon upon sermon just for that. And you'll find that in Genesis 35, that's the first place Bethlehem is mentioned. And, 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 and Rachel was buried there. Ruth was redeemed in what city? Bethlehem. By whom? Boaz. Boaz redeems her, and you'll find that in Ruth chapter 4. I'm just jumping a little bit here, but there's amazing history and connection to Bethlehem and significance to this little tiny town. And it speaks, and Ruth speaks of that city being a place of redemption, especially through Boaz. And it was again in Bethlehem that David was not only born, but in 1 Samuel chapter 16, remember that David was anointed the king of Israel by Samuel in that town. Bethlehem. Bethlehem. What a powerful place. And therein, here's the thing. This is what makes this a most significant little town. Because this is the reason that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. Jesus was the promised Messiah. That means Everything. It really does. Notice in our text that we read from Micah, the words. He says, For out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. Out of that insignificant little place, in human eyes, and in God's plan, huge, right? 
But there's promise there. Out of you, though you are small, you might think you're insignificant. My plan is grand. The ruler that I am going to set up, and he will come forth. He will be born there. He will come for me. Those are important words as well that Micah writes down. For out of you will come for me. What that means is, is that the ruler who will be born in Bethlehem is born for God's ordained purposes. No one else. For God's ordained purposes and God's plan to be fulfilled will come unto me, for me. Not for the Jewish people, specifically, politically. No. But for me, for my plans to to revolutionize the hearts of men and to cast out and break down the curse and the spell, if you will, of sin upon men. That's what he did. That's what God's plan was. I will send Jesus, and out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. He was the Messiah, the anointed, the predicted, the chosen one who would be a king out of Bethlehem Ephrata. Many of the Old Testament prophecies declared that the Messiah was to be of the line of David. If I were to read all of them, we would be here for quite a while. We would. But I'll just read Isaiah chapter 9, one that we know. We read around Christmas time very often. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, the prophet says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end he will reign on catch this he will reign on david's throne he will reign on david's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and here it is again forever there will be no end forever the messiah was to reign on david's throne And everyone in Israel, every Jew, knew it. That was part of their history. It was bloodline. They knew. They understood that. And so when the angel appeared to Mary to tell her that she would bear the Christ, this is what the angel declared in Luke chapter 1, verse 32. Your child will be insignificant, and he will be called the son of Joseph. See, you're not, you, know, you don't have it open in front of you, but that's not at all what he, she said. I'm, I'm only playing on, on the idea of the insignificance and that we can get caught up. And those are, he, he was declaring great things. Your child will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. That's Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. I mean, that makes me excited because, I mean, this king who came for his people, he's the king of my Life as well, and he's our king as his people, and he rules perfectly and forever, and it's amazing, and he's powerful, and nothing will ever strike him down from his throne. And the angel continues and says, The Lord God will give him, catch this again, the throne of his father David. Every Jew knew it. It was history. It was a connection. It was the bloodline. I know I've said that like three times, but it's really, really, really important. 
And the Messiah was to be the son of David sitting upon his throne. And in Luke chapter 18, I'm jumping, there's many other references, but in Luke 18, 39, there's a blind man that comes to Jesus. And what does he do? What does he cry out? Why does he cry out for mercy? He calls him, son of David, have mercy on me. You can't escape the connection. You can't escape the amazing plan that God had for salvation and redemption of humans. It goes way back and it starts with Bethlehem. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, as you know, for the last time on Palm Sunday, Matthew 21.9 tells us that the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of... That's right, you, you, you're getting it. Son of David. The Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. It was ingrained into the thinking of Israel that the Messiah, this promised king, the anointed, the chosen one, would be of the line and of the kingship of David. And God, and, and I'm telling you, man, God drove this truth home not only by prophecies that declared that he'd be of the line of David, but also by his very choice of the birthplace of Jesus. Powerful stuff when we see it that way. And the angels declared, of course, that this was Bethlehem, the city of David. That's the reason. That's, 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 that's one of the main reasons why, why it's Bethlehem Ephrata. It's because of these things that, that Jesus was to be born as the Messiah, the King over Israel and sit upon the throne of David in that bloodline. I believe there's another reason that God chose Bethlehem. Ephrata for Jesus' birthplace. Throughout the Bible, if you notice, there are people in cities that are renamed because of a message that God wants to give us. You'll find that. You'll find, for example, that Salem in the Old Testament is renamed Jerusalem. Thank you. You'll find that Jacob is renamed Israel. You'll find that Simon is renamed Peter. You'll find that Saul is renamed in the New Testament Paul. And there are others in the Old Testament as well and throughout. And listen, I believe in the same way that choosing Bethlehem Ephrata for Christ's birthplace had a lot to do with the meaning of its name. Now you might know this, but I want to remind you of this in case you've forgotten. See, it wasn't just the fact that this is where, where David was born, where he was anointed, and he, it was on the throne of David that Jesus would sit and he would rule in that Davidic line. It was, it, it was that, yes. But, but really, when you think about it, when it comes down to it, it's all about this. It comes down to this, that out of Ephrata comes this ruler over Israel, right? But not only that, this name, this name Bethlehem simply means, and it's so powerful, house of bread. House of bread. Now when you hear that, doesn't that for you, if you're, if you're a Christian or if you've heard the stories or teachings of Jesus, doesn't that for you, where, where is that connection? Doesn't it bring connections to you? A powerful connection that you just can't escape. And it's all deliberate and it's all on it's on purpose. God had a plan. He knew what he was doing. And it is that this little insignificant small town 
was actually very significant. Bethlehem, the house of bread. Jesus declared in John chapter 6 and verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Never. Not like, but never thirst. You see, Jesus' birth was more than just a historical event, and it was. It was more than just, as we would say, this cute little story that we can, you know, tell our kids or that we can share with our kids and, and read and coloring books and watch little video clips about it and how cute it was and the sheep were around him and Mary and Joseph and all the other animals and the, the magi come and bow. It's more than that. Jesus came to radically change our lives, people's lives, humans' lives, and, and, and the religious order, if you will, forever. Forever. Jesus came to be our bread of life. He came to be our bread of life. You know, we eat, you've heard this, we're familiar, but we eat a lot of bread in this country. Other countries probably eat more because cultural and different things, but we eat a lot of bread. I, I don't know what the number is. I can't even make it up or pretend I know what it is, but there are all kinds of bread items. I'll even include donuts in that. <laughs> Can I? <laughs> yeah, right? I don't know. But, but we eat so much bread in, in, in so many different forms. And, and you know, we, we're blessed, when you think about it, with so much food that we can hardly begin to realize how important just a single loaf of bread can mean to some people. That, di- that bread on the counter is one day past the best buy date. Where's the trash? I don't. I know a lot of you are shaking your heads. Thank God we don't. It's significant for so many people. One slice of bread. It can mean everything for them. And down through history, as you know, bread has been the main staple of food. Even in ancient Israel, it was a main staple of food. In fact, it's been called the staple of life, right? You go back to the, to the, to the, to the Middle East and to the, the cradle of uh, civilization, as we call it, and we study history, and it's, it, that's, bread was huge. It, most folks depended on it just to survive, and that's what Jesus was saying. That's what God was saying when he says, he will be born in Bethlehem Ephrata, the house of bread. And then Jesus, when he was born, and early in his ministry in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4 and verse 4, this is what he said. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus was saying simply this. I'll make it as simple as possible. You need bread to survive. No question. That's no doubt. But you need God's, God's words even more. That's what he was saying. You need that to survive in your physical body and on this life on earth. But you need God's word even more. His words even more. For your soul, for your life, to truly live and to be sustained, you need God's word. God spoke through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 55 and verses 1 to 3. And he says, come, God's invitation, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have 
No money, not even a penny. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money, he asks through the prophet, on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair, God says. Give ear and come to to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to, here's that name again, David. You can't escape the connections. It's unbelievable. To me, I'm sorry, maybe I'm just loving it. If you're not, I'm sorry. I wish you could come along and just feel what I feel and into my spirit. I, it's Come and drink and eat and be satisfied because the one who is to be born comes from the house of bread in Ephrata. He comes from the house of bread. He is the bread of life. And listen, we have all these... Listen, when Jesus came, he came to satisfy that hunger and thirst that Isaiah spoke of. He did. Micah declares in our text that he was from of old. If you look at the verse, he was from of old, from ancient times. You know what that means? It means he always was. He always was. In fact, John 1, 1 says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word... I'm listening... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was was made flesh and dwelt among us. In the beginning was the Word of God, and the Word was God. And He was God, and He dwelt among us. He came, and He lived among us. That, that bread that gives life that came, and He spoke only the words that were God's words. And He always was. And in chapter 1, if you read those first few verses a few times, you'll realize not only was Jesus always there, but that Jesus is God. In John chapter 8 and verse 58, not only, the prophet says he's of old from ancient of times. Jesus is talking to, to, the, to the Jewish leaders and he's making a response to them. And he says, you're bragging about your father Abraham, but you know what he says in verse 58? He says, before Abraham was born, I am Not I was. He said, before Abraham was born, I am. And I am. He was making himself equal with God. And that word, he was right to the Pharisee's face saying, I am the God who always was. I'm self-sustaining, all-powerful, personal God. I am he. And before Abraham was even born, I am. Not I was, I am. Which means I always was and I always will be. That is an amazing truth to, to hold on to. And think about that. You know, when you do your joy thing again, when you say, Jesus or me, when you're grumpy or when you're feeling whatever. Jesus or me. And remember, well, Jesus is the bread of life. And he always, he's I am. He, he's, he just, he, I am. Always was, always will be. Blows our mind, but it's so comforting and encouraging and it pushes us on. You know, we have... All kinds of hungers that need to be satisfied in our lives. I don't mean physical ones. I'm not going to make this list of 30 things. Well, we have a hunger for X, Y, Z. and I could list a lot of things. A lot. Right? Just living as a human being. The things that we hunger for, not just physically, but, but 
in the deepest part of us and relationally and, and in our minds and socially, just so many things that we long for and we're hungry for and we want to be satisfied and we keep wandering around without Jesus and we can't find it and we're invited to come without any money and be satisfied. But I'll give you just a couple. One of the things that we all hunger for, I'm being careful when I say this, but I'm going to say it. And if you don't like me and you disagree, that's fine. We can talk about it. But every single one of us here has a hunger to be accepted. And I believe that's God-given. Because you know why? Rejection happened in the garden. And there was a reacceptance because of what God did to make it right with Adam and Eve. So every single one of us wants to be accepted. Now what that looks like or what that means to you, I, I don't, we can philosophize and argue whatever, but we all want to be accepted. Ultimately by God. And that acceptance could only be made if somebody, a ruler, a savior was born in the city of David, the house of bread. It's the only way. I have felt rejected. Have you ever felt rejected? Hmm. Come to think of it, has Jesus ever felt rejected? Has he actually been rejected? Yes. Yes. In his humanness, yes. And even as, even as God who walked this earth and as Savior, the Messiah, he was rejected. And he felt and he knew what that was like. All those things, he, Hebrews tells us he experienced all these things just like we do. So he can relate to us. If I could... You phrase it that way. And there are many people who feel that way about God as well. They feel like they're rejected. And I'll tell you what, they feel there's no way he would ever accept them. In fact, they feel, I'm not saying they are, but they feel like they're, God can't accept them, I'm rejected by him. And yes, sin separates us. Oh, it does. And so on a certain level, there is. Unless we're right. We, there's, there's no acceptance until we believe the sacrifice Jesus paid to make us right. I'm too sinful. I'm not worthy. I can't say the right things to God. And so on, and so on, and so on. And, and do you know when we do that, it comes back to Jesus or you because you can't do anything. It's all about what can I do? And it's not that. It's what Jesus did. And, and he's there and he's waiting and we want to be accepted based on what we can do and or how we can muster up for God. And no, you'll never do anything that, 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 that validates or shows the worth of God by your actions. Never. I love it when people bring babies to church. Right, like little babies. And, and don't misunderstand what I'm saying, and I'm not here to... to but you see a little baby, and they're all there. They, they're, they have almost no idea what's going on around them. I mean, obviously, right? I mean, they, they have their, their senses are in, in, in going on, but you can go to that baby, you make all kinds of weird faces, and you're like, you're doing all kinds of weird things, and that baby's like, oh, you're the most awesome person. You make me feel so great. It's awesome. And we do all these weird things with babies, don't we? And, we're, and we feel so comfortable doing that. Don't we? 
Right? You're out of character almost sometimes. Like things you would never do around adults when you're hanging out with them. It, all of a sudden as a baby and you're doing things, you're like, you look back and you're like, oh man, I can't even believe I was making those noises that came out of my mouth. I can't believe I made that expression. Like, and yet, we never get rejected by the baby. <laughs> They're like, you're the best on your laughing or whatever, right? Or they tell you to do something again, right? And they, and, cause they, and they, they make a face like, do that again, because they want it, right? You don't get, but it's, you're safe, if you will, to do things like that around a baby. And I'm not here to say Jesus is a baby. Don't even misunderstand me one bit. Don't run with that, because that's, you're, you're putting words in my mouth, and you're adding thoughts that, in my head that are not there. But see, that's why John 3.16, if I could put it this way, is so popular. Because it's the truth, first of all. But it has something there that brings relevance to this. It speaks of God accepting us. You know it. You can even quote it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But the next verse says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Jesus came to earth as a baby because He came to satisfy our hunger to be accepted by God. And you can go to Jesus just as you are. I know, I don't mean, we we can use that loosely sometimes. It doesn't mean you never change. I'm not saying, but you go just as he will not reject you. He will not cast you out. If you come to him in sincerity and with your heart and humbly and you realize who he is, he will not turn you away. Jesus came because he wanted to satisfy, God wanted to satisfy our hunger to be accepted by God. So, acceptance. I'll, I'll give you another one. I'll give you a couple more real quick. Second one is I think there's a hunger for forgiveness. But see, this goes along with the idea of being accepted, and especially being accepted by God, who will accept us and bring us in when we come to him in faith. True faith. The second hunger I think of is forgiveness. I've had times in my life I've had times every day in my life when I'm just sitting there or I'm driving in the car or, yes, I'm showering. And I do shower, by the way, some of you who wonder. And all of a sudden, I can't believe I said that to that person. I can't believe that was my attitude. I can't believe, and you just, you go through this, and the Holy Spirit convicts you. You have that conviction. You feel that guilt. And have you ever experienced that of something you've done you wish you could take back? Yeah, every single one of us. I know. And there's this pain, and there's a a heartache to realizing that we've, we say we've messed up, but that we've sinned in our life. That there's a hunger. We have a hunger in that moment, especially in that moment, to be Forgiven. And forgiven so that we can be accepted by God. You know, Jesus was born in such a way that you might think he was like just forgotten, not even known about. 
in a way. Think about it. This small and significant town in the middle of the night, revealed only to the angel. The wise men come. This small, in the middle of the night, everybody's sleeping. People in Bethlehem have missed it completely, and he's born there. But he's there. He comes to be the Savior of the world, as promised. He will save people from their sins, the angel told Mary. Born in a barn. Laid in a feeding trough. And he's honored by these shepherds who are just shepherds. The circumstances of Jesus' birth were deliberate. God did all of this deliberately from Bethlehem Ephrata in the line, the throne of David where he would sit. He did it in this place, Bethlehem, that is called the bread, house of bread, so that the bread of life could be born and minister and satisfy every hunger that we have for acceptance and forgiveness. Philippians says, Paul says in Philippians 2 and verse 6 to 8, that though Jesus was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why did he humble himself to become like us? So he could die for us. So he could die for us. So that his blood could cover our sins, my sins. Jesus came to earth as a baby. He became like us so that He could satisfy our hunger for forgiveness. And lastly, the third hunger I think that that we need to satisfy is the hunger to not be afraid of death. Death is real. I'm going to die. I know it doesn't come as a surprise. You're going to die. And I want to remind you, don't be surprised. And unless Jesus comes again beforehand, I'm not a party pooper, but we're all going to die. We don't have a choice in this matter. You don't. And lots of people are afraid of death. But the birth of Jesus spoke of his death because he was born to die. Now, I don't know where this came from, but I have a list here, and I think it's interesting, and I'll share it with you, that someone once contrasted the scene at the manger with the scene at the cross, because there was no room for them in the inn, so they laid him in a wooden manger. Now there was no room for him in the hearts of men, so they hung him on a wooden cross. A bright star came and stood over the place where the child was, And as Jesus was on the cross, from the sixth to the ninth hour, darkness fell over the whole land. Joseph and Mary wrapped Jesus in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger where no baby had ever been laid before, at least that we know of. And now Joseph of Arimathea, being a good and righteous man, he asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. And what did he do? He wrapped him in a linen cloth. And he laid him in a tomb where no man had ever been laid before. And all the shepherds came and they adored him and they went back praising and glorifying God. 
And then all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, and they beat their breasts and they went away when Jesus died on the cross. One of the wise men brought myrrh as a gift for the baby Jesus. And the Bible records that Jesus brought myrrh as an ointment for the body of Jesus. The last thing that the angel said to those shepherds on the hillside was, Peace on earth, goodwill toward men on whom his favor rests. And the last thing that Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room was this, Peace unto you, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Almost everything about the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem spoke of his ultimate destination, which was the cross. Because that's why he came. He came to die, but then to rise from the dead. Now, I want to encourage you with this before we come to a close. Hebrews chapter 2, the writer says this in verses 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood... He too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were, listen to this, who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Do we believe it? Jesus came to die so that he could defeat death and free us from our fear of death. That doesn't mean I don't have anxious thoughts and I don't wonder, but he freed us from that, to be free from that bondage. And we know that because Paul himself wrote about that, the resurrection and the hope we have in 1 Corinthians 15. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the bottom line. The grave will not hold us down. It will not hold us down. We are victorious over that because of what Jesus did and because he was born to die in your place so that we could have eternal life and that we could be forgiven, accepted, and freed from that spirit of the fear of death. Because Jesus came to satisfy our hunger, to not be afraid of death. Do you know what he did? He gave us eternal life. Gives us eternal life. The last verse of Old Little Town of Bethlehem, it says, How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. The last verse says it all. Where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. The one who was born in Bethlehem Ephrata, the house of bread. Do you feel insignificant? Have you felt insignificant? God loves you. Do you feel important? Do you feel like you're all that sometimes? 
walking with pride and arrogance and sometimes cocky in certain moments. Maybe, maybe you are. Maybe there's that one or two per people in here. We've all done that in certain aspects of our lives, right? I'm going to tell you as well, God loves you. And if you're the one who feels insignificant all the time, I will simply tell you this. Lift your eyes to Jesus. And if you're the one who thinks you are significant and God still loves you, bow your knee and humble yourself. Because Jesus has come from the house of bread to satisfy your every longing. I can eat bread, but it won't satisfy your hunger. In order for your hunger to be satisfied, you've got to decide to make the decision to reach out and take what God has offered. It's only in that way, only in that way, that your need, your hunger, your thirst will be satisfied. I don't know where you're at this morning, but if there's anyone here today that you have never, and you know there's a hunger, you're not satisfied, and it's not just a physical thing, it's not even just emotional, intellectual, that you can't reason or rationalize, but it's in the pit of your gut. I'll tell you what, that's a spiritual thing. And there's only one person who satisfies that hunger and quenches that thirst, and it's Jesus, who was born from the house of bread and is himself the bread of life. Will you receive for yourself? Eat for yourself? And be satisfied for yourself. Will you do that? Some way to do that is to bow your knee and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need you. Thank you for dying for me. And I received your gift of eternal salvation. And then feast on him. Feast on him and you'll never be hungry or thirsty again. And if you feel like you are, then you've got to ask yourself that question again. Is it Jesus or you? And go back to him. Would you do that this morning? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us, Lord, to extend our hand out to receive the eternal life that comes to our faith in your Son, Jesus, who is the bread of life. Thank you for your amazing plan that he would be born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. The city of David, where the bloodline connected Jesus all the way back, centuries back. Your plan was and is perfect. Thank you that you don't leave us hungry. And thank you that you offer for us to come. You invite us to come and to eat and drink without cost, without anything, but just to receive from you with open hands and humble hearts the satisfaction only you can bring. We surrender to you, we love you, and we thank you that you were born for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.